0: Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 12, Oil Rig Virtues and Heroism. I have so
1: many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind.
2: Then I'll ask the obvious question.
0: Start asking questions.
2: You're the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we unpack the purpose of the oil rig rescue and what it says about Clark. We look at the virtues of the scene in the context of the film, and the virtues exhibited by Clark. We go over the definition of hero, and we tackle that tired criticism that Superman's not a hero because he's invulnerable. Then we'll wrap with the mailbag. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ. But this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary and I hope you had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. This is expected to be a fantastic year for genre film and we can now say that Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is coming out next year. So I've tried to think of different ways to explain the difficulties of tackling criticisms of creative choices and addressing subjective attitudes, but I think it's all sort of encapsulated in the disclaimer that I give at the beginning of every show. So let's just quickly unpack it. I'm not looking to convert anybody. So if you're not a fan of Man of Steel, thank you for listening to the show, and I'm open to your feedback and thoughts, but I'm not telling you to accept my point of view, and if you've got an open mind and are willing to listen to another point of view, I commend you for that, but my show isn't intended to convince you of anything. When I say reasonable minds will differ, That means that I give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they can be reasonable, yet still come to a different opinion, view, or position than myself. And I give everyone that courtesy. Even if it turns out that you're not reasonable, I thank you for listening. I've got nothing against you, but the show isn't for you. And finally, the show is for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. If you didn't love Man of Steel, then doubtless an ongoing show is going to be confusing. But if you step back and think about anything that you love, it's only natural that you want to discuss it, praise it, and share that enjoyment with others who might like it too. Of course, you can enjoy something, but only want to enjoy it superficially or viscerally. And if you're content with a thumbs up, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But the show is intended for those who get enjoyment out of really looking into something, turning it over, examining it, thinking about it, and so on. I completely get that that is not everyone, and it definitely isn't the typical blockbuster tentpole filmgoer. But somehow, this is a film that still spurs intense discussion two years after its release, and so it seems capable of sustaining that level of commentary. So now that I've unpacked that disclaimer, we're going to start to tackle more subjective topics in this episode. When we're talking about something as philosophical, or deeply held, or potentially subjective as virtue or ethics or inspiration, there's absolutely no way that I can accurately or fairly discuss virtue in a lifetime say nothing of just one episode. Additionally, with a wide range of beliefs and tenets out there, doubtless somebody's toes are going to be stepped on. Well, with all my disclaimers in place, let's just call this a commentary episode rather than one that professes to provide any answers. And so, what we're called to comment on in this episode is whether man of steel provides any virtues that could inspire humanity to aspire to. So we're going to start with a narrower question, and it's actually posed by listener Daniel, who wonders what the purpose and the placement of the oil rig scene was. Basically, he's asking why we needed another action set piece after all the action on Krypton, why the film didn't just continue chronologically with young Clark's story, rather than start us into his adulthood. Well, since the scene is only two and a half minutes, I'm going to play the audio uh, just to refresh your memory on everything that happens in this scene, and then we'll get right back into discussing it.
2: Where the hell did they find you, Greenhorn? Let's
3: get this crap in the air! Gentlemen, secure the deck. We just got a distress call from a rig due west of us. Secure the deck! all civilian boats, stand clear.
2: The subsea valve's failed and the rig is about to explode. Roger, Coast Guard. What about the men left inside? Over. Forget them. They're dead. Greenhorn, fetch me my binoculars. Greenhorn!
3: We're gonna make one more pass, then we're getting out
1: of here. Wait, wait, wait! I got some guys in the helipad!
3: Get that last guy loaded! We have got to go Hey let's go What are you
0: was a great action set piece and it establishes the primary time frame for our story and it imprints onto us who our main protagonist is and what his core traits and character may be. There is a strong justification for the flashback mechanic as a means of wordlessly accessing Clark's inner thoughts, but that's another show. The reason I wanted to start off with this oil rig scene is because it shows how much characterization is densely packed into this scene, which is only two and a half minutes long. So when we talk about virtue or traits or characterization, this scene is filled with them. And to start off first, he's humble. So Clark is being disrespected. He's the lowest crewmate on the job. He's asked to do gopher tasks, but he accepts it. And he's working an itinerant seasonal job. While I've never watched Deadliest Catch, I did watch The Perfect Storm in 2000. And we recognize that these are inherently dangerous jobs. They're unlikely to draw the privileged to it. So simply put, Clark isn't above doing this kind of hands-on job. That job also illustrates a little bit more about Clark. Second, it shows that he's adventurous. Irrespective of whether he can be physically harmed, the danger of the work is more active than a desk job. However, the job is more benign than, say, cage fighting for his funds. So in just the first few seconds of film, if we assume that this is more than, say, a temporary job, we could start to believe that as a literal fisherman, there may be moral or religious or character parallels that could be drawn between the character and this iconic profession which many of Jesus' disciples and miracles revolved around. Now, if he is a fisherman, he can cope with a more austere lifestyle. To a degree, we can imply that he isn't wealthy, since the danger of the job doesn't attract those who are well off. But in addition, while one is at sea, they don't have the wealth of choices for activities, or distraction. This isn't the hustle and bustle of a city, or the constant flurry of social media or the internet. If this is a typical long voyage, then he must be sufficiently socialized to endure the trip, confined in quarters, without succumbing to cabin fever. So that implies a degree of patience and grace and tolerance for others, if only to survive that situation. That's all in the first few split seconds where we see Clark and have an inkling of who he might possibly be. But even if we don't believe that Clark is a fisherman, the scene continues to characterize him for us. So third, he's a beginner. The fisherman who quote-unquote saves Clark also chides him for his inexperience. Clark is never named in the scene and is called Greenhorn three times in under a minute. The screenplay is practically screaming at the audience to acknowledge that this is a rookie when the first name on earth that we know him by is Greenhorn. This isn't a veteran. He isn't seasoned. He isn't experienced. He is new at this. Now fourth, we see that he is not omniscient. If you came into Man of Steel expecting Superman to be all-knowing, the filmmakers disabuse you of this with his first on-screen interaction with another person. Unless you have the unlikely position that Clark was intentionally jeopardizing Burn, it seems much more likely that Clark was genuinely surprised, and that Burn actually pushed him out of the way. The view that Clark isn't 100% aware and all-knowing is supported a number of times throughout the film, including Lois sneaking onto the scout ship and Zod being able to surprise him in combat. This is a vital limitation towards maintaining a believable psychology and not writing yourself into a corner in the future. To a degree, Superman with complete auditory omniscience has to exist only on some kind of fairy tale level because of the scope of evil that exists in this world which he can intervene in. Saving cats in trees and having secret identity hijinks is harder to make work in a reality where there is a sexual assault roughly once every two minutes and seven shootings a minute in the United States alone by some reckonings. If you dial back the reality, then it isn't an issue. But if you dial back Superman's senses and awareness, it also isn't an issue. So here they wisely chose the latter and made the audience aware of it immediately. Now as an aside, we've discussed it in the past, but Byrne pushing him down indicates that Clark's mass is normal and that super strength and invulnerability do not make you immovable. If it did, the ship couldn't move him either. So the film is already cuing the audience that Clark may have to follow the rules of physics more closely than Superman ever has before. More on that in a bit. So Byrne scolds Clark, he calls him Greenhorn, and then with subtlety, Clark cracks the slightest hint of a smile. And so we get that next piece of character, which is fifth humor. We don't know whether Clark is smiling at the irony of Byrne quote-unquote rescuing him, or if he's simply delighted at seeing humanity's capacity for good in such a rough and unlikely package. But that amusement or joy means that Clark isn't completely stoic. Rather, he is moved, both literally and figuratively, in this rescue and for our next trait. So sixth... Clark is a do-gooder. He volunteers on his own initiative without prompting. As a smaller thing, he picks up the loose cordage on the deck without being commanded to do so. But of course, as a greater demonstration of valor, irrespective of having to show his face and his powers, Clark immediately leaps into action to rescue the men trapped on the rig. That is his character and his inclination towards rescue and do-gooding. Now seventh, we see that Clark is optimistic and hopeful. Despite the radio declaring, forget them, they're dead. He still endeavors to help them despite the consequences to his job or his identity. People die every day. No one would blame the Debbie Sue for not helping, and Clark doesn't know that he can help, but he hopes that he can do something to save the men that everyone else has given up on. Eighth, we see that Clark is strong. He's able to swim to the rig, climb it without issue. He is invulnerable to fire. He can tear a door off its hinges, and then he can hold up a section of the oil rig. He can even survive the collapse and the explosion of the rig. However, despite being strong, we see that ninth, he's not all powerful. He has limits, and he needs help. Despite his powers, Clark could not have accomplished the rescue all on his own, if the helicopter wasn't there. Additionally, as we've covered in episode 4, his strength doesn't prevent the metal under his feet from giving way. This reinforces the points that we've highlighted above, that this isn't a Superman with omniscience, and that while his powers defy physics, the physics of the world around him aren't suspended. And so this being of incredible power is still limited. He isn't going to be able to turn back time, or turn a tornado upside down, or carry the frozen surface of a lake from its edge, like in Reeve's more fairy tale like stories. Now that we've left the fantastical alien world of Krypton, the filmmakers are trying to convey the veracity of this setting. When Greenhorn holds up the derrick, His face is strained and he roars with effort. He isn't yawning and effortlessly propping it up as if it were nothing. And that's because this Clark still has limits. His upper limit is probably higher than what he knows, which is why Jor-El will later advise him to keep testing his limits. But implicit, even in Jor-El's encouragement, is the fact that this Superman does have limits. Along those same lines, I'll ask you to consider, why doesn't Clark superspeed the workers to safety? He's already revealed his powers and his face, and he obviously wants to save them. So doesn't it seem likely that the filmmakers are showing us that this Superman can't cure all ills with super speed, if indeed he even has it at this time? And if Clark didn't use super speed under these circumstances, keep that in mind when we go back 16 years earlier to discuss Jonathan Kent's death. Rather, Clark needs their cooperation to get everyone topside. Now, knowing that Clark needs help, In this scene, we're shown that humanity has good within it. Clark was rescued by burn on the boat. Even if rough around the edges, he still risks himself to help Clark. The Debbie Sue is a private vessel. Nonetheless, they responded to a distress call, and they ask about the welfare of those inside. And the Coast Guard helicopter pilot puts himself in jeopardy to rescue the oil rig workers. These are all individuals that may help to instill hope into Clark about humanity's worthiness. So tenth, Clark is selfless, and this act of altruism comes at a cost. Clark has burned his identity. He has literally lost the shirt on his back. He's lost the job and the paycheck that he would have collected. There's a bittersweetness to every rescue because the very ties that connect him to humanity and that inspire him to help, they must be severed every time he does help. It is in the aftermath of this rescue that he's reminded of the consequences of another rescue and in an introspective flashback sequence, but that's another show. Despite the cost, Clark pays it without hesitation. He has. Has everyone aboard the helicopter first, and then he leaps to hold the rig in place. And so we come to our final trait. Eleventh, Clark is a man of action and not words. The entire scene occurs without Clark speaking once. The filmmakers are showing us that Clark is a doer and not a talker prone to quips or monologues. Clark does everything in that scene thanklessly and with humility, as we've discussed above. He doesn't have any particular connection to these individuals. He isn't saving Jimmy from a chemical plant fire or Lois from an Eiffel Tower terrorist. He's simply helping because he can, not to preserve a relationship, receive accolades or hurrahs, or even thanks. These characterizations and themes continue to be echoed and revisited throughout the rest of the film, and through flashback we're able to see Clark's progression and we better understand the oil rig scene after the flashbacks. Despite being a set piece, it's still less intense than Krypton, and so it provides a bit of a break while still giving us action that builds towards bigger and bigger set pieces later in the film. So this scene does a ton of work. And I think this scene is meant to be in the back of your mind when we go through the flashbacks. When Jonathan challenges Clark to think about what is at stake when he exhibits his powers, we're meant to remember that Clark ultimately does choose to use them. We'll definitely cover all of this more thoroughly, but that is another show. And so just in these two and a half minutes, we see a lot of potential virtue in Clark. Which, to quickly review, are humility and adventurousness. A novice who doesn't let his inexperience stop him from trying, and a limited, non-omniscient being who leaps into action for things that are within his perception. It's a hero that's realistically affected by physics, who has a slight sense of humor, and is a do-gooder who's optimistic and hopeful. He's strong, even if he's not all-powerful. He works with others, he's selfless, and he lets his actions do the talking. So from the moment we meet Clark, he exhibits courage and a number of noble qualities, and he accomplishes a great feat which is the very definition of heroism. Well, speaking about heroism, that brings us to the second topic of this episode. Of course, few detractors take issue with the oil rig, and instead, they argue that Clark's lack of rescue with Jonathan, or that the stopping of Zod, or the scope of collateral damage, irreparably damage Clark's heroism. Well, we've got apologetics for those scenes and those actions, but those are all their own episodes. For now, let's proceed under the assumption that those are failings or sins. And the question is whether Superman is or can be heroic, even if he has failings. And I think it's obvious that Superman is heroic in Man of Steel. Heroism basically has three definitions. You have classical heroism, literary heroism, and modern heroism. In classical heroism, it comes down to extraordinary feats. You can be morally abhorrent, but so long as you bring more victory to your tribe, or score more touchdowns for your team, or secure more clients for your firm, you're a hero. It doesn't matter if you're a bully, or a braggart, or a boozer, so long as your accomplishments, or your feats, are great. As Superman can do more than any mortal human can, he fits the classical definition of hero. Now when we talk about uh, literary heroism, it's about story focus. There you can be weak or strong, incredible or a failure, but so long as you are the focus of the story, you're its hero. Now, Clark is undoubtedly the central character of Man of Steel, and so he is the literal, literary, titular, hero. (laughs) Modern heroism is basically about character and virtue. And whereas classical heroism's roots come from ancient mythology and folklore, modern heroism sprung up as a way of describing the romantic and chivalrous hero's character and virtues. Unlike classical heroism, where success matters in that you are accomplishing a feat, under modern heroism, you can actually fail at your given task and still be deemed a hero. For example, individuals who fall in battle, who die attempting a rescue, or who fight for social change even if they never see it in their lifetime. They can all be deemed heroes because they exhibit the virtues that include but are not limited to self-sacrifice, perseverance, honesty, courage, loyalty, etc. So as we've discussed above, and will discuss later, Clark exhibits all of these virtues which make him a modern hero, and so he fits the very definition and meaning of hero. Now, as a collateral topic, when talking about the Superman mythos in general, and not Man of Steel specifically, Superman critics may try to argue that Superman isn't a hero or heroic because his feats are effortless and his invincibility means he's never in jeopardy. They may hold up a fireman or batman of examples of quote-unquote real heroes who put their lives on the line and who have to work hard to save people. Well, first, you can argue that their supposition is counterfactual. There are certainly examples of Superman being in jeopardy and requiring great effort to save people. But second, you have to remember that using our three definitions of heroism, you might see that there is a problem with what they're doing. Essentially, the critics are equivocating and confusing classical, and modern heroism and their requirements and then misapplying them to literary heroism. They're just mashing up all three improperly. So let me give you an example. The Critic confuses classical feats of heroism with modern character heroism, causing them to conflate the two and espouse illogical statements like, well, since Superman stopping that avalanche took no effort, it isn't heroic, and therefore Superman is a terrible hero of the story. But remember that classical heroism isn't concerned with the effort, so long as the feat itself was incredible. That's why gods and demigods are classical heroes, and so the effort taken is irrelevant. Now likewise, modern heroism isn't concerned with feats, so actually stopping the avalanche has nothing to do with the effort or virtue needed do so, and then neither necessarily impact how compelling Superman would be as the focus of the story in literary heroism. So likely what the critics are attempting to grope in the dark at and say comes from the belief that Superman's physical advantages translate into character disadvantages. And this relies on the just world fallacy where, to put it kind of tritely, ugly people must have good personalities and beautiful people must be mean spirits. In essence, that an invulnerable person has no cause to be brave or to show courage and that a superhuman needs to sacrifice nothing and so on. Now obviously this is a narrow and fallacious view of the character. Superman routinely demonstrates his virtues and his character, which are exemplary when compared to deconstructed versions of himself like Hyperion or the Plutonian, etc. Which cynically, and perhaps accurately, exhibit what a superbeing without Superman's character would be like. The tests are simply different and on a different scale. Now, aside from intentionally malicious criticism, the main reason, I believe, that this criticism persists is simply because the most popular form of modern heroism is the self-sacrificing risk amongst dangerous professions like firemen, police, soldiers, and so on. But what's happening is that the critics lack the imagination to come up with risks of greater scope than those faced by firemen, police, soldiers, and so on. And so they equivocate those dangers with all dangers, and thus Superman can never be tested in their minds. Now, interestingly enough, many other cultures perceive heroism differently. And in those cases, the fireman isn't necessarily exalted above, say, the schoolteacher or the housewife, or even the pacifist who has to sacrifice to test their character in other manners. Superman tends to exhibit those virtues more routinely, like mentoring, paternalism, diplomacy, and so on. But because those virtues don't involve a man laying down his life to die, it can be dismissed by narrow-minded critics. Now, despite the cultural bias towards glorification and fatalism of self-sacrifice unto death, many times living is harder than dying, and Superman over the years has managed to capture that in many of his more heroic stories. But back to Man of Steel. You'll notice that none of the definitions of heroism call for perfection. And indeed, the vast majority of our heroes, real and imagined, are flawed, and even intentionally so in the case of fictional heroes. In fact, the flaws are often vaunted as a strength with respect to many uh, fictional heroes. So it seems absurd to claim that even if we presume that Clark has failed or sinned, that he ceases to be a hero. What the critic really means to say is that Superman isn't a paragon of heroism or virtue. And that means a perfect example or model of excellence, with an emphasis on perfect. Now, to be fair to them, jor charges Clark with the task. He says,
2: You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun, Cal. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders.
0: Now, note that JorEl says that you will, future tense, give them an ideal, and not that you are, presently, the ideal. And arguably, he also says, given an ideal, not be the ideal, but that's another topic for another time. Also note that he's talking about Success and wonders, which is more in line with classical heroism than modern heroism, in this context and for these lines. Although in other dialogue, it's implicit that he is concerned about Callel's character, certainly. However, perfection is problematic and that is another show. Let's just say for now there are few to no renditions of Superman which can be universally deemed as morally perfect. And such a position tends to paint Superman into a corner which causes the writers to have to draft scripture rather than stories. And if you canonize one definition of perfection, that starts to become utterly predictable and devoid of vitality. And that can be what kills the relevance of a character who's meant to live and breathe on screen or in the stories. So, in a more uh, realistic setting where we show Uh, the toll and the consequences of danger. Uh, We take away the safety net trope where everyone is rescued or at least no one is visibly harmed. It humbles Superman and it brings him into the real world Uh, rather than making him an unwriteable god who makes arbitrary decisions on turning back time or avoid addressing domestic violence or other issues like that. The film is not deconstructing Superman for the sake of tearing him down or the shock value of slaying sacred cows. Rather, every decision has a storytelling or character development reason which lays a strong foundation for future arcs. Moreover, Superman is still a hero he's self-sacrificing, saving strong, brave, determined, patient, and virtuous while also being real. You're the answer, son.
1: All right, so let's talk a little bit about the oil rig sequence. It's a super ambitious sequence in which uh, Henry rescues some stranded oil workers. The interiors of the oil rig, as well as the exterior, were all built in a parking lot in Vancouver, um, British Columbia. Basically, we created an oven for him to walk through with jets of gas and fire coming out of the failing oil rig as he, as he made his way through it. And we took painstaking detail and time just to make sure it was safe, but also to make sure it was exciting. When you see Henry, of course, in the doorway after he rips the weird tin door off, which when we shot it was just like a piece of tin foil that he crushed that allowed the CG door actually to be destroyed. And then him standing there on fire was actually uh, CG fire in that case, but the rest of the fire was real. It was done in and around an elevated platform we used to land this um, uh, big Coast Guard helicopter, which was a real helicopter, strangely. We decided that that should not be CG, <laughs> but that the rest of the world should be. It's funny when you're designing a sequence and, and uh, making something like this, you are amazed at what we decide to make CGI and what we decide to leave real and i think the rule of thumb for me is like if they touch it if they come in physical contact with it then it should probably be real and so you can sort of see that uh rule of thumb playing out in this sequence where henry comes up these stairs and is on this oil rig of course he's in physical contact with the with the uh, platform and with that thing that he's holding up the uh giant derrick that's falling on him as well as uh the guys climbing in the helicopter so all that's done for real, the fire, a lot of the fire is real, but uh, it's really cool to see all these elements come together. You're the answer, son. Now, there's that one scene where there's a fire on one of the big
2: uh, drilling rigs out in the ocean. That that looked like real fire. Uh, It was real fire. I mean, there's there's the long shots, uh, CGI stuff, but in the building, it's real fire. I mean, I wasn't actually on fire. No, Um, but but, I mean, you're close. Well, there you are, but... Well, it looks right. like it. All, mean, that stu- all that stuff in the background, thank you very much. But that's real fire. I mean, um, there, m- there must be tremendous heat, right? A uh, huge amount of heat. Yeah, yeah. They put this, something, this thing called fire gel on me. And, oh, they uh, put a gel uh, on Yeah, there. to a me in gel. And um, the whole point of fire gel is to keep moisture next to the skin. I see. And there's this one bit which didn't make the movie, unfortunately. But uh, we, I, I walk up towards these stairs, you know, looking for these guys who are working mm. on the rig. And um, they set off this 15 to 20-foot fireball in front of me. And, um, I'm about 25 meters away from this thing sure. and the fire gel on me dries and cracks instantly. And oh. had it not been wearing it, they would have been, my skin would have blistered and come clean off. Yeah. No. So it's, uh, but it's perfectly safe. I mean, they, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: You're the answer, son. All right. I, I'm going to wrap up that part of this discussion. We'll certainly come back to Clark as an aspirational figure in the future. But for now, let's just get to the mailbag. You're the answer, son. So over the break, I have received wonderful feedback from a number of listeners and reviewers, and I really appreciate the encouragement. Thank you so much. Uh, Please keep sending it in. Um, Let's start with our first question today. Again, we have loyal listener Maggie, who had a lot of feedback on the Lois episode, and uh, I've hashed that out with her over email, Um, Maggie writes in with a lot of comments about Wonder Woman as a contender. Maggie happens to back Lois as the one true pair and expresses a number of reasons for why Wonder Woman is perhaps a bad match. But I just wanted to highlight something amusing. She mentions that I didn't talk about Lois measuring dicks and drinking scotch up straight, and I didn't mention it because I didn't really have much to say. Uh, the military often uses blue language. I'll never forget reading Black Hawk down and learning what a combat Jack was. So, um, Lois's language may have been a way of getting around the formalities and just showing that she's one of the boys. Regarding the scotch, uh, the only comment I have is that it was served to her without ice, but don't despair if you order scotch straight up, as she did, and it arrives with ice. Uh, Just so you know, straight up is unfortunately an ambiguous term and it is interpreted differently by different bartenders and patrons. So if you want to avoid any confusion and your bartender doesn't pay you the courtesy of clarifying your order, just say neat for no ice or on the rocks for ice. And if you want it shaken, stirred and or filtered, just ask. You're paying good money. And if James Bond isn't afraid to ask for what he wants, neither should you. For our next question, how did Clark get his job at The Planet? Uh, well, according to Lois's first article, she says a background check revealed that his work history and identity had been falsified. So it's possible that Clark just did that again in order to obtain his position at the Daily Planet. However, I don't think so. When Clark falsified his work history, he also falsified his identity. But when Perry introduces him to Lois and Lombard, it is as Clark Kent, meaning that Clark hasn't falsified his identity this time. So then it becomes a question of credentials and work history. And while Clark is unlikely to have a traditional degree or work experience, you have to remember that Perry introduces him as a stringer. So in journalism, a stringer is essentially an unsalaried, freelancer uh, who gets paid on a piece-by-piece basis. As there's little risk involved in bringing a freelancer on board, employers are more willing to accept non-traditional backgrounds so long as the work product is good and it proves itself. As an itinerant nomad for what Clark lacks on paper, he more than makes up in interesting life experiences, which could be the source of interesting stories. So that's at least enough to get his foot in the door as a freelancer. Okay, Jonathan asks, how did Lois survive being left in the Arctic cold? And the assumption there is that uh, it was really cold and that she was out there for a long time and that combined she would have died. So we can tackle any three of these assumptions. Uh, Assuming that it was cold and somewhat lengthy, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing following surgery. Probably too long to get into here, but cold therapy is something that they are starting to use as a way of speeding up recovery. So perhaps that's what happened there. Alternatively, we don't know how warm her coat was or if Clark left any superheated rocks for her to bed upon. But lastly, we don't know how long she was actually there. Clark may have only just dropped her off. And at the end of the day, it's basically a inconsequential piece of uninteresting logistics. That was properly excluded from the film. We know that Clark wanted Lois to live, which is why he saved her in the first place, and so it's completely reasonable that her disembarking was only allowed under conditions where she would live. We assume that the military had to find her, but for all we know, they were actually directed to her location. Again, all of that is uninteresting off-screen logistics, so unless there is no possible way that matter could be reconciled, which I've just given you, I think, about four different reasons, we don't have to presume that it's an issue or a plot hole. I have time for about one more question. Uh, As long as we're talking ice, Jonathan asks, how was Clark able to find the scout ship? And um, the easiest answer is to take the one in the film at face value and simply say, coincidence, luck, or chance. He was in the right place at the right time to overhear the soldier's speaking about Ellesmere Island, and it was fortunate that it planned out. And if you want, you can infuse destiny into that aspect of it. However, I think there's also room for more uh, rigorous apologetics here. Uh, If you picked up the Man of Steel art book, there's a line in there indicating that the ship may have called out to Clark, or that Clark was unconsciously drawn to the ship. And there's a couple different ways you can reconcile that if you take into account that it's implicit that Kryptonian technology has a degree of Mental Interface. Note that even before Zod entered our solar system, Jor-El was speaking English to Clark. So it's possible that the ship was broadcasting something which could subliminally draw Clark to it. However, why would a Kryptonian scout ship need such a subtle feature? So I think a better explanation comes from one of the more esoteric things that sets Clark apart from others, as we discussed in episode um, 3, was it? Right. Uh, Genetic memory. Note that many animals have migration patterns and they have veritable. Homing beacons built into their biology. Jorel is implied to have known that the scout ship was on Earth, and Clark's command key would not have produced a hologram when combined with his capsule, and so it required the scout ship for Jorel to speak with Clark. And from their conversation, it is apparent that Jorel always intended to speak with Clark, but only after Clark had been raised human. As we've said before, many animals have migration patterns, and these are often tied to maturity, so Jorel may have exploited. Clark's genetic memory and included a pre-programmed impulse to move him towards the location of the ship once Clark reached 17. This would explain a bit of his restlessness at that age and Clark gradually working his way towards the scout ship. It would be something that gives him an inclination, but doesn't completely override his uh, free will. Alright, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of of the superman podcast network so here are some promos for the network shows that i suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the superman mythos
2: gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero
3: superman, superman.
2: The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring
0: Superman and Batman,
1: Golden Age Superman,
0: the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, it's Superman,
3: the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Carousel Podcast,
0: Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up Up
1: and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast, the world's best podcast, and
0: Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com.
1: Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Hogan Charlie Niemeyer,
0: Russell Brad, Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner,
3: Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe,
0: Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Beyer, Matthew Epps,
3: I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener. And I will hope you'll join us at manasteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see, or you can email me at mosaic at If you like what you've heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. If you're still around, for Christmas, I was gifted the album for It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman uh, from the 1966 Broadway musical. It was a lighthearted satire that wasn't terribly successful or well-received. However, there is one particular song on it that I enjoyed, and it needs a little setup. The song is performed by Linda Lavin, who is playing Sydney, an assistant at the Daily Planet who recognizes Clark Kent As a catch. As appreciation for this gift, I'm tacking this on at the end of the podcast, so please enjoy. You're the answer, son.
3: Haircut, simply terrible, necktie, the worst, bearing. Just unbearable what to tackle first Still you've got possibilities Though you're horribly square I see possibilities underneath There's something there
1: Color, pure Peoria,
3: fat I'm not Queen Victoria this suit has to go still you've got possibilities let us give it a try I see possibilities may Shine. Yeah.